Thanks to Bombfell for supporting this episode of Market Foolery. Bombfell is an online personal styling service for men that helps find the right clothes for you. Get $25 off your first purchase at bombfell.com slash fool. That's B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L dot com slash fool. It's Thursday, October 5th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Hidden Gems, Abby Mallon. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. We got uh, we have sort of a um, uh, an aquatic theme to today's show. <laughs> I think it's fair to say because SeaWorld Entertainment is reportedly in play, and we will get to that story. But we have to start with Norwegian Cruise Line Holdings, which is up about four percent today because Norwegian Cruise Line Holdings is going to be added to the S and P five hundred index. And anytime I hear that a company is being added to the S and P five hundred. My first question is, who's being kicked out? And in this case, it's not really being kicked out, but Level 3 Communications was in the index, and it got bought by CenturyLink. So, the people at Standard & Poor's, they're, you know, they're like, hey, it's not the S&P 499 index, it's the 500 index, we need someone new. And we, you and I were talking right before we started taping. First of all, this is you know if you own Norwegian Cruise Line Holdings, hey, congratulations, you're having a good day. It's up four percent. But I think the question that we get when this happens is, okay, should I now buy shares of this stock because every S and P 500 index fund is adding it is adding this company. Mm-hmm. So that is at least in the short term going to push it up. So to someone who's like, hey, hey, Abby, should I be buying Norwegian Cruise Lines? What do you say? Um, I don't know that this event by itself is necessarily a buy indication. I think this is more of just sort of a visibility. I think you're going to see a lot more conversation about this stock than you have in the past as more people and more analysts start to pick it up and it gets, you know, just broader coverage in general. Right. And with Norwegian Cruise Lines, Royal Caribbean, Carnival, unfortunately for them, they are in the business where more often than not, if one of those companies is in the headlines, it's usually not great. It's, not great. It's oh, people got stranded on the ship, or it ran aground, or you know, it's something like that. But as you said, this is now going to get more attention. And so, if someone is looking at the cruise lines, because recently on Motley Fool Money we were talking about the airline industry, and in particular the CEO of American Airlines coming out and saying, "We're going to be profitable for the rest of time." I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but he said we're 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 going to be profitable forever. We're never, which is a hell of a hell of a time frame to put on a, your own company's profitability. But when we were talking about it, part of the conversation was around fuel prices, and mm-hmm. if fuel prices are not going up dramatically anytime soon, and I don't think there are many people who think they are, then that is at least part of the bull case for airlines. Is that also part of the bull case for cruise lines as well? Um, yeah, I think it's definitely something to consider when you think about sort of the economics of that business and how you run it. Um, there's the cruise line industry is actually pretty interesting. So, um, Norwegian Cruise Lines is the smallest of the three that you mentioned: Carnival, Royal Caribbean, and Norwegian. They're the smallest with 10% of passengers, but they actually capture 12.5% of revenues. So they operate in sort of this upper echelon tier of market, which is um, a little bit more insulated from. External factors, including probably 
fuel costs and things like that, they have a little bit of an easier time passing that on to their customers. But I think the big thing in this industry to watch and think about is that there's actually high barriers to entry, not just because the cost of acquiring the ships is so high, but also capacity growth is capped at about 5% net, so after removals and then plus additions. Um, And this is because there's only three shipyard groups that can actually build ships, and they have a capacity of about 11 ships a year. So, you know, you can only add so many berths, as they call them, or rooms to the water. Yeah, definitely a high barrier to entry when we're talking about cruise ships that hold (laughs) upwards of like 5,000 people, right? Yeah, some even larger, I think. Uh, So, okay, good day if you own Norwegian Cruise Line, but not necessarily everybody run out and buy it. What is what is one metric to look at in the cruise line industry? If you, if someone is looking at this and thinking, all right, there's a high barrier to entry. Fuel costs aren't going to be a huge impairment anytime soon. I'm going to at least kick the tires. That's a horrible expression to use when we're talking about boats, but uh, or in this case, cruise ships. But um, what's a metric people should be looking at? Yeah, so the big story with uh, Norwegian Cruise Lines is that they sort of uh, lagged their competitors in terms of efficiency ratios. So, if I was going to look at this or start covering this, one thing I would want to watch is those ratios. So, things like commission fees as um, people move from booking through travel agents to more booking online, or staff economics and how those play out as they. So, uh, Norwegian acquired Prestige Cruise Lines a little bit ago, and so watching how those staff economics plays out with now a bigger fleet. All right, let's move on to SeaWorld Entertainment. Uh, multiple sources reporting that Merlin Entertainment, which is a theme park operator based in the UK, has approached SeaWorld about a potential bid. And this, I think this is going to be interesting to watch, because Merlin Entertainment, at least according to the reports I've read, they're not, they're not looking to buy the whole Company, they're looking to pick up sort of select parks, that sort of thing, and the conversation that SeaWorld management wants to have is: No, if you, we're not selling off parts of the business, if you want to talk about buying the whole thing, we can do that. Um, where do you think this goes from here? I mean, do you think that a year from now, SeaWorld does start to talk piecemeal, or or? On the flip side, do you think Merlin Entertainment says, okay, we're, we are currently, from a market cap standpoint, about four times bigger than SeaWorld? Yeah, let's see if we can pull together the money to make this whole thing work. Yeah, I mean, SeaWorld has definitely struggled. I think shares are down more than 25% this year. Um, they've struggled with attendance falling every year since 2013, which is when that documentary came out called Blackfish about the public treatment or the poor treatment of um, orca whales. And you've seen sort of I mean, we talk about it a lot here at The Fool, but there's this shift and this changing mindset towards uh, conscious capitalism and making sure that you're putting money with companies that you really believe in and really can stand behind. And I think, unfortunately, SeaWorld has been one of those um, apparent sufferers of that. I know I was reading an article with the recent hurricanes and stuff. Someone flew their drone over SeaWorld just to look at the orca and make sure he was okay, and they got fined for that. And it got, you know, there was this huge outcry about how could you not take care of the animals and things like that. So I think this is just sort of one of those businesses that is, um, at least in the recent term, been sort of doomed. And if I were management, I would definitely think about separating these assets. I would, you know, take what you can get for it. Um, but I, I mean, I also understand that there's some sort of value to the name, and you don't want to split up the name. Because um, I think they operate a couple different parks, but there's a majority of their revenues come from a few. So 
you know, the sum of the whole might be higher than what they're thinking if they broke it out. I'd never heard of Merlin Entertainment, um, but I have heard of some of the brands that they have under their portfolio. So Legoland and Madame Tussauds, uh, and uh, they have a bunch of parks, not just in the UK, but properties in in other countries as well. Um, so yeah, I think this is, I think this is going to be interesting to watch because, as you said, you can draw a straight line and that line goes down. You can draw a straight <laughs> line from July nineteenth, twenty thirteen, when Blackfish, the documentary, was released, to where the stock is today, and it is lost painful ab- about sixty five percent of its value. And this may be one of these these situations, and we've seen this in other industries, particularly the retail industry, where Someone comes in and is interested in buying part or whole of the business of of the business, and they are initially rebuffed. And then six months later, twelve months later, the situation gets even worse, and so they say, "Okay, yeah, now we're ready to talk." Right, right. All right. Before we go on, got to say thanks to our friends at Bombfell. Bombfell is an online personal styling service for men that helps find the right clothes for you. Here's how it works: You go to bombfell.com/fool. You fill out a simple questionnaire, and having done it, I can tell you, it is a really simple questionnaire. And then you're matched one-on-one with a dedicated personal stylist who handpicks every piece of clothing for you. Your stylist emails you a preview of their selections, and then you've got 48 hours to make any changes you want, or even just cancel altogether. You are in complete control. And then Bombfell ships you the selected clothes, and you have seven days to decide what you want to keep, and you only pay for what you keep, and you send the rest back, and it is free shipping both ways, and that's it. The clothing is shipped straight to your door, so you don't have to spend hours shopping at the store. Again, the questionnaire was really easy. The sign-up process was simple, and the stylist that the poor stylist who I felt bad for, because I was like, I'm sorry you've been assigned to me, um, totally nailed the the item, so it was great. We've got a special offer for our dozens of listeners. $25 off your first purchase. Go to bombfell.com slash fool. That's bombfell.com slash fool. And get $25 off your first purchase. Again, B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L dot com slash fool. Um, you were part of the crew with me and uh, David Kretzman and Jason Moser and Andy Cross and others down in South Carolina for the Motley Fool One event. And one of the stocks that you were presenting on, you were busy. You you were up on the main stage with me for one presentation. Then you had a breakout session. You had a breakout session that you were helping to run as well. And um, uh, and I I heard very good things about your breakout. But I want to talk about the company that you had talked about uh, in the main stage session, which was Grubhub. And the interesting thing that sort of came out of it when uh, when we were flying back yesterday was. Um, you were telling me about some of the members at the event who came up to you afterwards because they, I don't know if they're shareholders of Grubhub, but they're very familiar with Grubhub, not necessarily as customers, but because they own restaurants. Restaurants, yep. What is that experience like for people who own restaurants to deal with Grubhub and other competitors like Uber Eats? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, Something that we've struggled with on the research side of it is that we're not a restaurant. So, you know, you can only read so many reviews or whatever, but sometimes it's hard to get this sort of insider's look at it. So it was interesting when people came up to me after and said, you know, oh, I own a restaurant and, you know, here's been my experience. And overall, it was very positive. People said that they, Grubhub generates a lot more orders than any of the local um, 
delivery options. So like in DC, that'd be like Postmates or Caviar, things like that. So wait a minute. I'm sorry. There's a local delivery, food delivery, like restaurant food delivery business in DC, and the name of the business is Caviar. Mm-hmm. It's a DC-based one. I think. That's that. Wow. I I would not have guessed that. Grubhub. I like that because it's just like, hey, it's it's generic. It's whatever the food is. You right. tell me that your food delivery service is named Caviar. My immediate assumption is that it's only, oh, you're only high delivering from high-end food or yeah. like Dean and DeLuca or something like that. Yeah. I'm not sure necessarily what the different um, product ranges across are, but I know that Grubhub typically has a much larger selection than you know these local ones just because it's easier to sign national accounts and things like that. But yeah, I mean, it was pretty interesting hearing these restaurateurs give their, you know, inside scoop. And someone was actually telling me, um, we have a member who owns a restaurant in Atlanta, and they were saying that uh, Grubhub is starting to organize sort of corporate orders. So Grubhub will go in, take everyone at the company's order, deliver you this mass order right at lunchtime, and then in turn deliver it back to the corporate client. And um, but the the catch to getting this corporate account was that you had to have a dedicated um, service person at the restaurant just working on these corporate accounts. So I think you know that says two things to me. One that says that the order volume is there and you can get enough demand for that. And also, you know, the stronger that you get those relationships and the more embedded in everyday processes that Grubhub becomes, the harder it is to replace or compete with. So um, yeah, I thought it was interesting for sure. Well, and if you think about it, we've seen this play out with coffee companies like Starbucks, which has recently struggled a little bit with throughput, with mobile ordering and and not really being able to get the coffee orders out in the way that they would like to. We've seen restaurants struggle with that and sort of having um, essentially two kitchen staffs dealing, one dealing with in-store orders and mobile orders. Yeah. Um, but it, it's it's great because if you're Grubhub, you're you're essentially restaurant agnostic. Right. Like if you've got the corporate client, you are. they don't want the exact same food every day or every week. But if you're Grubhub and you can work with a few different restaurants in a city Doesn't like Atlanta, make a difference to you. then you're all good. Yeah. That's interesting. I yeah. never I'd never even considered it from the restaurateur's side of the equation. Yeah. So the interesting thing about their business model too is that from the Grubhub perspective, their main clients are actually those restaurants. So they get Restaurants don't actually pay a subscription fee, but they pay commission per order. So, you, as a restaurant, you don't pay anything to Grubhub to be listed. You just pay on the volume that you generate, which I think is also pretty interesting. That's kind of a good problem to have, though. Like, if you end up paying Grubhub more, it's because you're getting more orders right, through them. Right, definitely. And it didn't at least, I don't know if it was the folks from Atlanta or maybe it was someone else who said that. They they basically like dealing with Grubhub more than Uber Eats and any of the others that they deal with as well. They did say that that the people are more professional. The food delivery process is cleaner and streamlined. Um, I guess someone is the money better. The money is better. The commission rates are better because actually restaurants can set them themselves. So you set a commission rate. And the higher the commission, the higher up in the search uh, form you come. But if you're a well-known local restaurant that everyone's going to order from anyways, you can set a really low rate and people are going to search for it regardless. Um, but yeah, I guess someone was actually saying that I forget which order delivery or which delivery um, company it was, but someone actually makes them staple the bag closed to confirm that no one's actually touched the food. But like, this is you know counterintuitive to certain packaging and 
um, like how certain things need to be delivered. So just simple things like that, that I think, you know, everyone's worried about the Uber Eats or the Amazon, but um, I think that the under considered part is that food delivery is actually like very challenging and um, a little bit more in some ways has different or more challenges than delivering people, you know, because you have to keep make sure it's hot. You have to make sure you're going the right way. You have to make sure that, you know, you have to get out of the car and actually physically hand it to someone. You can't just like pull over on the side of the curb and let them jump out. So until flying drones become part of that equation. And until then it's drones. Just... <laughs> Alan, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Austin Morgan, pulling double duty today. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday. Yeah.